What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with John Sinclair, President of Steel Springs Pictures. Now, most of you may already know John. You may have met John when he was Executive Vice President over at Oprah Winfrey Network. I loved having him on the podcast because he basically spoke from the experience of a high-level buyer but a high-level buyer that came into the job with no previous experience in our business. He had been isolated off on an island in Harpo Land, Oprah's company. He had been there for 20 years. He hadn't worked with agents. He had never worked with outside production companies. He had never taken pitches before. So imagine you're shipped off from Chicago to Los Angeles and planted in this high-level job at Oprah Winfrey Network. That is the experience he spoke to on the podcast. He's now on the other side now producing. We talk a little bit about that. He had a great, great Jane Fonda story at the end of the podcast. You're going to want to stay to the end to hear that. Great insights into what made Oprah such a huge, global, iconic success. This is my sit down with John Sinclair. I hope you enjoy it. So you've been in California six years now? Yeah, and uh, time like flew. I was having this conversation the other day. I'm like, when did we get here? And has it really been six years? And it's, I mean, including the two lost years from the COVID situation, but yeah, six years. And you were in Chicago for many, many years before that because Harpo is where you came up in the business, right? So it was Chicago to California? Chicago to California. And in Chicago, it's it was like 20 plus years. Yeah. So that was that was the longest stint we ever did. Prior to that, I bounced around, you know, never did more than two years in any market, you know, doing that run up. But yeah, Chicago was the bulk of it. All right. So now that you're six years in, how how are we feeling about Los Angeles? Okay, here's what I'm gonna say. So uh, you know, I don't I don't know how old you are. I'm probably guessing I'm a couple of months older than you. <laughs> So to move here as sort of a, a fully formed person who's done a lot of work in this business was great. I don't know if I could have come up through the ranks. I mean, I've heard your stories and other people you focused on on the podcast. I don't know if I could have done that, you know, but to come in here as an adult and <laughs> having worked where I did, I had a healthy respect for what was going on. I wasn't distracted by all the shiny pennies around. And could really dive into the work of it. And that was that was super um, helpful. So I have now come in and I love it. I really do. I mean, I did make a decision when I came. I was going to choose to love it. It was going to work for us. And it did. Uh, I find it fascinating. I find the people very enjoyable. I think LA from outside gets a bad rap. People here work their butts off. There's a lot of tons of creative, creative people who love the business, who love shows it's not all there is some flash but it's it's more real than i expected and the people are more welcoming than i expected so wait you said we so we decided it was going to work for us who who is the we oh so when i moved 6 years ago my son had just graduated high school my oldest and was going to college and then i brought my other son who was going into ninth grade and I've been married forever. It's That's a different podcast. We can talk about that someday too. Um, so we came out together. We sent my oldest boy off to college. He went to Montana State. 
And my younger boy went to school here and we were like, you know what? You can drive around and hate it because there's some stuff in LA that's distracting. And you're like, what is this? Or we can look for the stuff that we like. So let's just make a decision. We're going to like it. And we did. We did. did my, you my, my youngest son, uh, who's in college here in, in LA, vows he never wants to leave LA. So there you go. Don't blame him. Yeah. Don't blame yeah. him. But I've been, I've been in California my whole life and I've, I've flirted. I flirted with the idea of leaving in college. Didn't do it. Flirted in the middle of the pandemic of maybe leaving the state with my family, maybe looking elsewhere. Couldn't do it. No. Couldn't do it. And I have, and I know Chicago, Chicago's my city-in-law, you know, got married in Chicago. I spend maybe Where three did you get weeks. Married? We got married at a hotel in downtown and I'm free. I'm freezing on what the name of the hotel is, but it's, <laughs> it's in the theater district, but the kick-ass, I mean, the wedding was amazing, but the rehearsal dinner we rented out Murphy's bleachers at, oh, Wrigley, at, at Wrigley Field. And so, you know, because I, I don't love rehearsal dinners, the standard rehearsal dinner, because nobody from either side of the family really connects and talks to each other because yeah. it's a sit down dinner at a really long table. So we had this like loose hangout, watch the Cubs game from the rooftop of Murphy's bleachers. And like my wife's you know, uncles were talking to my uncles and everybody was meeting each other and her cousins were meeting my cousins for the first time. And it was awesome. It was just beer and hot dogs. And it was for my family, I would say 90% of my family that came to the wedding had never been to Chicago. So imagine their first Chicago experiences coming to, you know, little Jimmy's wedding, uh, you know, from, <laughs> from like my uncle and aunt's perspective, and they get to go to their first Cubs game, you know, in the same weekend, I had to make it worth their while, Jonathan. Oh my gosh. No, you know what? It was a fantastical city. Cause look, we moved there. We had no kids. We were young. We would do the, you know, the free show at second city at midnight and then That's get cool. like crazy. I don't know, ever clear margaritas down in old town. And we'd bike on the bike path along the lake. And, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. So the cold, it, it, yes, it's another level of cold in Chicago, but that didn't bother, bother me so much. And you were, I mean, you kind of referenced it earlier when you were talking about moving to California, how you had, you had been in different markets in your younger days. Now, whenever somebody says, went to markets, usually that means they came up in local news. Absolutely. So, I'm, okay. So I assume, right. Right. No one, no one else describes it that way, unless you come up in local news. And it's interesting, like Corey Henson, like so many other folks I've had here on the podcast have come up through news divisions. Here's the thing. Tell, so, tell me your best small market news experience. Assuming you did go to small markets. I don't know. Oh, Jimmy. No, it's worse than that. If you can even imagine. So I, I graduate from college, can't find a job. I learn about this station in New Jersey because my dad taught ninth grade English his whole career. And when he started teaching in the sixties, um, he was super young. And one of his former students was general manager at a station called WMGM TV in, uh, it was in Linwood, New Jersey. Okay. Now, Linwood, New Jersey is not even a market. It is a barnacle. Yeah, thank you for hang. explaining this because I do not know New Jersey. So oh. yeah, yeah. So it, it, there's the Philadelphia market, which covers all of like South Jersey. Yeah. And Linwood was sort of an outpost. Okay. And it was one station in a, it looked like one of those aluminum pole barn types of buildings <laughs> under a water tower. 
And this, so I get an interview there. I drive out there and the woman who was my dad's former student is now grown running the station. And during my interview, she comes in and says, well, did we hire him? This is Mr. Sinclair's kid. You got to hire this guy. And then, so the befuddled station manager at the time looks at me like, well, okay. So I was given a, a news camera and this was back in the days. I don't want to date myself because I'm extremely young, but if this was a two set. So you had the camera on your shoulder and you carried a bag that had a three quarter inch record deck in it. Yeah. And they would send you out. I worked 3.30 to 11. I'd cover a news story, come back and edit it and put it on. And many nights you would be the only camera op in the studio and you, you just ran the whole thing. So baptism by fire, everything went in. I mean, some of the stories, Jimmy, de defy uh, belief. If, if, if I told them to you, there was um, some catastrophic things <laughs> that, that happened. There were some silly things that happened. Uh, I'm trying to think because there was, okay, because there's one person in the control in the uh, studio, yeah. you just kind of like preset the cameras and kind of danced around. But there wasn't a lot of prep for how do you, you know, set up things like the chroma key or whatever. So we had, I won't name her name, but we had a, a, a weather person who, a female, and when she went to do the weather, only parts of her came through on the chroma key, <laughs> not her face. And... <laughs> They technically, the, the equipment was old and a lot of things and they couldn't readjust it. So the whole like five day forecast, two things were on the screen and that was it. Just her floating chest was Just on the screen. Just her floating chest. Yes. I mean, there, was, there were moments where, you know, people would leave jokes on the weather graphics and in the morning cut-ins, those would come on. I mean, it was one thing after another because it was essentially what, what they did was you got hired at a base salary, you got a 50 cents an hour raise pretty much every six months. And after two years, they would come by and put the electronic media on your desk back when it came, you know, as a paper uh, magazine with the jobs in it and put it on your desk and be like, it's really time to go. So really? Well, because that was the model. But I'm like, I, I don't think that this is my calling. So and what else can you do? And I made commercials for a while. I did that. I mean, it, it was bonkers, but it was sort of a thrown in the deep of the pool, figure out everybody was the same age. So we partied like animals. We did all this crazy stuff, but it, it was a good sort of first um, sort of drop in into the business. And there's a weird full circle story. I can tell you, we can see how you like this one, but Jay Leno had just taken over the Tonight Show okay. and NBC put this thing out and they said, get bumper shots. So I went out one night and I went to, I want to say it was the White House steak shop in Atlantic City that Sinatra took shop from, like all these people. They had a groovy neon thing. I took a picture of it. I sent it in the Tonight Show, hoping it would get on the air. I swear to God, whatever years later, doing promos for the Oprah show, Oprah's interviewing Jay Leno on the set of the Tonight Show. I'm, gonna, I'm there to cut promos with the two of them. I look over in the monitor, my shot from the steak shop is in the monitor on the Tonight Show set as I'm standing there like 10, 15 years later, some crazy thing like that. And I said to the director, I go, what is this? And they go, oh, that we just used that bumper shot. I go, I did that. And she didn't care. She's like, whatever, kid. But I'm, I'm like, how, what are the chances? Oh, whatever. 
No, that I no, I love stuff like that. Serendipitous moment, you know, when you have like a past life in television meet up with a current life makes you think, okay, I'm it was all part of my uh universal journey here, right? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna share a sidebar because you might just along the same lines because it blew my mind when it happened, right? So we're doing Punky Brewster and we're preparing to shoot the pilot, okay? And it's obviously a reboot that, you know, the show is 30 something years old at, that, at this point and uh, even older, I think, since, since the original. And we're, we're prepping to the pilot, so we have to start constructing the set. So we're on the stage at Universal lot about a year and a half ago and we're, you know, we, we bring in the carpenters and they're going to build the treehouse, which is like an iconic set from the original Punky Brewster. And we're building our, you know, our new version of the treehouse, right? So the carpenter shows up to set that day, you know, cause they just get hired, you know, they don't, they don't even know what gig it is. They just get hired to show up, you know, cause the production designer has hired them. And the, the carpenter is like, okay, so what are we doing here? And the production designer says, oh, we're doing the new Punky Brewster pilot, the reboot. Uh, we're going to be doing the, uh, the tree house today. And the carpenter goes, are you serious right now? And the, and our production designer's like, yeah. He's like, I built the original treehouse on Punky Brewster. He's like, are you, are you being serious? And it was like this crazy moment where 30 something plus years later, the same carpenter who wow. built the original treehouse for Punky Brewster shows up to Universal one day and is told, you're going to rebuild your original treehouse on set. And we like, we all got chills. But like the, wow. the, the odds of that, right? Yeah. The odds that yeah. you would be on set at the Tonight Show so like over, well over a decade later with Oprah and it's your promo shot of all the promos in the history of the Tonight Show with Jay yeah. Leno that they could have on the monitor at the time. I love that stuff. No, it's crazy. You may, it makes you think, and you know what? It's wildly reassuring that there are other forces at work making stuff happen and it shows itself like that. Because otherwise... I just hate to think like, you know, the new thing, like we're on a rock spinning in space that means nothing. I'm like, I'm not ready to go there yet. Uh, but those little winks, I, I think I think it matters. And I think you also have to pay attention to it. Meant to be, meant to be. All right, so let's just get there. So your opportunity to get to the Harpo experience is what? What, 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 do you, what, what job are you leaving when you interview to get your first foot in the door at, at Harpo? Okay, so from New Jersey, I went to Dayton. I worked, I did... I did promos at Channel 2 in Dayton, which was the birthplace of Phil Donahue. Same station. His office was there. La -de -da. Did that, then went to uh, Pittsburgh. And I kept thinking bigger markets would somehow change that market experience. And I wasn't going to do news. Yeah. So I'm doing promos at the time. I had won like a local Emmy in Dayton and a couple other things. And I'm in Pittsburgh and I, I remember feeling like the first month and I'm, I'm, I grew up from around there. So it was a little bit like coming home, but I remember thinking this still doesn't feel like what it should be. So electronic media again, hits the desk every Thursday or whatever. I flip right to the back and look for jobs. And there was a blind box and it said, talk show producer wanted Chicago and send your thing into this PO box. I'm like, I don't know what this is. I call my wife. I'm like, I don't know what this is. This is cool. I don't know something about it. I don't know about talk shows whatever. Send my little tape off, forgot about it, forgot about it, forgot about it. I get a call. Woman calls me. She says, this is, I remember her name was uh, Thalia Caladimos calls and it's from the Oprah show. I'm like, what? Now just, yeah, describe where Oprah is at this stage in, in the show. Oh, Oprah was fully Oprah. This was, yeah. this was, uh, 
I started working there in the middle of season 10. So the Paul Simon theme song, 10 years come and gone so fast. All that. Oprah was already Oprah, the Oprah, like the world just knew. And uh, so I get this call. I do a couple writing tests. Fine. Will you come to Chicago? Absolutely. I'll be there. Whatever. And the writing tests then are hard copy, putting them in the mail. <laughs> yes. Right? Oh right. yeah. No, sending VHS tapes to me in the, you know, FedEx tapes and then writing them and then sending them back. Or maybe I faxed them from the office or something. I don't know, but I, I had to do two different shows, a serious one and not, and again, I'm, I'm writing promo. So I'm like yeah. winging it. Cause I'm like, this is my shot. I'm going to go for it. You know, I fly up there. It's a wintry day maybe November-ish, something like that. So it's cold, cold Chicago. I'm in the building and I'm shuttled around to all these uh, executives. I, I, I can't remember the exact number of how it was because of what happened next. I take my resume and I sit down in the executive producer's office. Diane Hudson was the executive producer at the time. Again, Oprah is already Oprah. It is known. I'm sitting there and Diane... Now that I worked there after some time, I realized what a crazy day this must have been. They were taping that day. Stuff was going on. I'm sitting there in her office. And then I hear like these like dog feet. And then I hear a shuffling over on my left. And I'm like, oh, and then I hear this voice. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's Oprah's voice. And I remember my neck and shoulders seized to the point where I lost the ability to turn my head. So I have to literally turn my whole shoulders over to acknowledge her and she had i remember she had rollers in her hair and and that face of hers is so iconic the earrings were iconic and i was just like oh my gosh i i hadn't mentally prepared for that i thought it would be whatever and she couldn't have been more charming and she asked diane a couple questions and then diane's like oh this is john he's here for a promo producer job. And Oprah's like, well, how do you think it's going? And I'm like, I think it's going great. And I'm still like seized. Like I'm a, you know, I'm an injured person, like whatever. Oprah's like, whatever. does he talk? Does he? Oh my gosh. But you know, my face is red, my hand, you know, it was just, I wasn't ready for it, but I'm glad it happened. And then the rest of the day was kind of a blur. Ultimately, uh, Harriet Seitler was running creative services at that time. She was relatively new. She was building the team. I mean, Harriet was kind of legendary. She had a Moon Man MTV award on her desk, I remember. And she and I became great lifelong friends ever since. And she was growing the department and was bringing people in and weaning off of freelancers, you know? And that's really how it started. And it was jumping in to a already fast moving river of a bunch of people who were, you know, some, now when I think back on it, the amount of work that came out of that building, I mean, if you've ever worked on a daily show, it's insane what, yeah. what, what, what is required to keep those things. And then imagine a show like that, because talk shows have changed so much. I mean, it was a primetime special almost every day. You could do, you know, crazy in-depth investigation episodes one day and then Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts and then the best gene for you and then reunion stories like it was that was just a week and it was each one of these things was produced to this huge high level and because in the promo department we watched everything 
Like we saw every taping. I mean, I literally saw 15 years of all of them taped the whole thing. So raw and uncut. And it was, it was magical. It was, and it was a, and it was a blur. And then as, as it went on, I sort of migrated into special projects, you know, oh, there's an award coming up. We cut together a tape. Sure. Because the talk show producers that were on that sort of juggernaut machine, that's all they did. They didn't have time for the random things, but then tapes for awards became, oh, we were going to do an Oscar special for ABC or, you know what I mean? It was like (laughs) these other things came in and just sort of grew into those roles and used people as we could. And then it morphed into development. And then it, uh, you know, when the show finally sunset, it became full-time development and then producing shows for uh, right out. What, what was like the special episode that was most dear to your heart? That was your pitch that you, that you got, well, you got made. That well, was here's a- the thing in the promos. We never, we didn't pitch shows. We, I was literally the tail. Oh, so you, right, for the whole time you were there at the Oprah show, you were in promos. I was in promos, creative services, development, special okay. projects, never in the, in the meat of it. So it was remarkable because, you know, when, when the teams, my experience of it was when the team was working on the shows, they worked on them for two weeks. That's all they knew. I got to see every show. Right. And sort of be the great sponge to take in all the things that were going on. And I interfaced with all of them to get all the materials that I needed. Mm. And that's what I was doing. So we weren't really in, in that thick of it on the, the topic side, which was actually, I have great compassion for them because imagine they're in a show that's 15, 20 years in, and you've got to come up with something and your host has seen and done pretty much everything in the world. Yeah. Yeah. How, how difficult that was, but seeing how that building operated and it was a whole big city block was uh, remarkable because it just never stopped. It had a massive energy under there until then hiatuses came and then it was like crickets and then it would fire back up, back up again. You know? Well, I mean, if you can, if you could, I mean, look, you were in her orbit for, for many, many years, including your time at, at, own, which we'll get, we'll get to. Can you like distill it down for us of like what you observed and what you learned by being around Oprah for all those years that allows someone to grow into such a success? Is it, she came into the world and was going to thrive no matter what, what she was going to be, or was it just the amount of effort and work and commitment she put in everything? Or was it a combination of both? I, I it's funny you ask, cause I've, I've thought about it now having, you know, had some distance to it. A, she's just one of those people that is so special that when they're in a room, you're just like, oh, that's a special person. But one, her her work ethic was insane. The amount of A, energy she took in and energy she expelled is phenomenal. That's just puts you in like, Superman, Superwoman, Wonder Woman category that you have that in you. But her, I would say the biggest superpower and the lesson that I took away was her love and respect of the audience and getting a sense from them of how they felt about whatever was being said or what was happening. And I think that helped her keep 
grounded and that connection with that audience is really what I, I think made her more of a beloved global icon, which is not an understatement, believe it or not. And then the ability to lead, because then later, you know, in, in other shows, working with her as like an executive producer and hearing her comments about things that she wasn't even in is just that ability that it can always be better. We can raise the, but we could, why didn't we think of this? Oh, we could, we should try that and never think small. Don't ever take your foot off the gas because if it could be better, can we work harder at it? Can we get one more thing out of it? Can this be this? Because we're missing this one piece. It was uh, exhausting until you can kind of catch up to just a part of it <laughs> to meet her, meet her intensity for the things that you were doing with her and then understand she had a whole long list of people in her office that needed that from her too. So I would say the connection to the audience was pretty much the superpower that I still don't know how she pulled that off. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's amazing to me. You're, so you're, you're at Harpo, you're working on the show, you're doing promos and eventually you get the call to go over to, the Oprah Winfrey network now. So you've been over at, you know, the, the show, right? But now but here's what happened. It, yeah. So as the show was ending, there was a little bit of an overlap between own coming on. Exactly. And the Oprah show was still on the air. So I started doing shows for own through Harpo. Right. So Oprah okay. behind the scenes. I did that one. Oprah's master class. I did some other ones as well because we had a, a unit and I look, I had the ability to call established production companies and producers who were good in that genre, like the behind the scenes show. We worked with True, Glendon, Steven, and we're like, we're going to we're going to cover the, the final season of the Oprah show in a reality format. Let's do it. And then I was in the gap sort of executive, executive produced like in this sort of co-production with them. How much was Oprah sitting in the edit bay watching those episodes of the behind the scenes series? Was she like saying, all right, we're cutting this off or I, I don't like my hair in this scene or I don't like how I talked to the production assistant in this scene. I'm, how much was she actually editorializing that cut of herself? Ah, uh, look, she, she saw every cut. She proved, she proved everything. She did all the interviews. She never said take, she was that. There is not, I guarantee you, there is not a frame sitting on a shelf of unused footage of Got her it. from that wow. show. Because, you know, it, it was funny because it was an actual, just there were like three places we could shoot with her. And we did those and she's so good and, and knew how obviously how, how to be, but it was still herself. And then we'd, we'd take that back and we'd go and we'd build whole shows about it. And we'd be like, you know, after break, if we have something of Oprah, let's go to that in the show. And then she would look at the cuts near the end. And obviously if there was something around whatever, but it was never take anything out of her. She knew and was completely comfortable. I mean, we built scenes out of her feeding her dogs at night before she, you know what I mean? Like anything with her people, people loved for, for all those, all those right reasons. But it was, it was an organic capture. And I thought it was, it was, it was funny because Leonard Roloff, who's like a known showrunner of housewives and all this stuff was sort of the key man from the true side. 
that was in the building and he'd come down and we'd talk about stuff and he'd be like, hey, I have, and I love Leonard. And if you're hearing this story, Leonard, you can laugh along with me. He'd be like, hey, what if Oprah would go to Starbucks with a couple of the producers and like have a meeting there? And I'm like, that's not gonna happen, dude. And he'd be like, but that'd be so cool. I go, no, that would make like the nightly news. Cause at that point the show was ending. Anything that she did was, you know, they were naming the street in front of the studio after like stuff was happening. Like it was, that's not how it rolled. If you want to see how the show actually rolled, it's in that show. Oprah met with the teams in her office, makeup, control room. Like that was, that was the rhythm. And I think that's the rhythm she had for like 20 some years. But one piece of that show that I found personally uh, that I'll hang on to forever. Cause I think what a, what a gift to be in the room where this happened. Leonard would have to interview her probably every three, four weeks during mm-hmm. production to get all her sound bites for the show. Yeah. And her team would always with her, you know, schedule it. Like it was the last thing she did before she left for the weekend. So the building was kind of sleepy and throughout that whole final season of this show that she did for 25 years, we would be asking her questions about it and and things that happened and we needed her bite to pull stuff together and everything. And I'm like, what a rare sort of gift this was in. And I wouldn't say, I mean, you can see it in the show. She's not sad. It's very like, like my work here is great. And, 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 and we've done something magical here and maybe it's time to go do something magical somewhere else. Right. And, but I have the memories of going in that office sort of in those quieter moments and we'd try to get her reflect and she'd be like, I'm not, I'm not going to get emotional about that. I'll talk to you about this. And, and again, pretty much every frame is, is in that show. And th- those types of things I treasure. That was cool. So when it's time for you to make the jump over to the network, who's making that call and saying, Jonathan, we want you to pack up, leave Chicago, go to LA. We want you to run unscripted for Oprah Winfrey network now. Who's calling you to like pitch you that transition? Well, there were there were two presidents at the time, uh, Eric Logan and Sherry Salata. And Eric Logan was sort of helping coordinate like what this would actually look like because I mean we all had great lives in Chicago. Uh, it was easy to get to New York. We had we had some shows going on, but the but the production facility was going to end, and we had done Beyond the Fix My Life out of there and a couple other things. So we we had some work, but the change is going to be made, and we just sort of, they talked to us about it. They presented some structures and it wasn't totally clear because none of us had worked at a cable network before. And then Eric was like, do you want to, how would you, what would you think about running unscripted? And I, and some of my shows were still on the network and performing really well. And I was like, sure. Yes. Great. And if, and a friend of mine, cause it was, it was a little, precarious because you didn't quite know what to expect. Not everyone wanted to move to LA. You know, it was an interesting sort of conflicting time. And a good mentor friend of mine was like, look, if you're going to go to LA, this is the perfect circumstance to go in. You can work at a network for a very famous brand. You're a buyer, which is extraordinary. And that's a good entry point into the town. Right. You meet the right people and you know, off you go. But now, you've been, you've had, been, but because you've been in, in house at Harpo, you're at the internal studio, so to speak, yeah. or production division for the network. You didn't 
you didn't have any relationships in LA or in the reality business for the most part. You didn't have to work with outside producers. You didn't know any other buyers. You probably didn't have to deal with agents much. So you were coming out now running reality fresh to the the community. Oh, no. So Jimmy, exactly. I knew knew Glendon, Stephen, and True because we were, you know, that's how that show was better. I knew a couple people at Radical Media because they were doing Masterclass. And I knew my own people that I'd known for like 10, 15 years. So then I stumbled on, of all things, I stumbled on your podcast, swear to God. So I was, I was commuting for like six months till my son graduated and the whole family was going to move out. My son was in a senior in high school. So I'd be on the plane and I downloaded your podcast and I kept a list. So I'm like, oh, Brent Montgomery, somebody I should meet. Oh, Eilenberg, somebody I should meet. General Connell, somebody I should meet. And I just kept ticking them all off. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a buyer. They're producers. I bet I can get a meeting with them. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I'm having lunch with David Eilenberg and I'm picking his brain. And then um, the agent thing was, was fascinating because that's one word for it. Oh my gosh. Well, they must have like a buzzer, like new person in town. <laughs> and Eric Logan was kind of helpful to me, to me as well. Cause he would be like, Oh, you should meet uh, Lance Klein. Next thing you know, bang, lunch with Lance Klein, fig and olive tomorrow at noon. Like I was like, yeah. wow. And I sort of worked my way through that. And I, it, it, what was, it took longer than I expected to understand how it works out here. It, it really did. And I made, I made some horrible mistakes. No, please but, tell. Please well, tell. Because so here's the thing, I, I, I got to the network and Sweetie Pies was rocking and rolling. Welcome to Sweetie Pies, which was a which was a, a pilgrim sure. show. Um, and we had Ian the Fix My Life. There was maybe one other show in development about to premiere and then nothing. And I didn't I didn't know the gravity of that problem. Um, but then I realized, uh oh the calendar is going to have empty holes in it and we, we have to figure it out. And because of that, I rushed some stuff and made some decisions um, because I fell in love with some ideas, but maybe those were great ideas, but maybe that's not the team to do it. Or maybe that's a great team, but that's not what they're best at. And there was some new learnings about the audience that existed. And it felt like a motion. We were kind of chasing what we thought we would work. And when you're desperate, you make bad decisions. And look, all peace and love to all the people I worked with. I loved all these shows. Some of them just blatantly just did not work to the way that the business requires. And that was another thing that you have to get hip to and all of that. And it's a totally different culture. It is uh, an interesting building dynamic. I'm coming in from the outside. And I swear to God, it took probably a year or, or more And I remember feeling like finally when I had caught up and I could take a breath and really develop stuff that put my heart and soul into it and not have to rush stuff on the air that I could exhale, took a minute to breathe. We figured out what was going to work. And then we had a string of really, really great shows that many of them are still going there. And we sort of carved out what the niche would be for the audience and, and how how to connect with the audience, how to let that audience see themselves in different characters. And it started to click and that became super fun. And, um, you know, and, but I'll tell you though, the drumbeat of the pitching 
and all these meetings and all of the, what that entailed was, I didn't know how exhausting that process could be. But what, yeah, I'd be like, you're, you're, you're a buyer for the first time. So now you've got to endure pitches and pitch meetings. And how long did you stick that out before you started like deferring those to the team members beneath you? Well, here's the thing. We were a super small team and I, uh, probably a personality flaw is I, because I hadn't grown up in that sort of environment, I really wanted to hear everything myself. No, and I wanted to sit across the table from people. I didn't want to look at a deck afterwards and hear that went great. I wanted to get a sense of the energy. And my number one determiner was, do these people really want to produce this idea? Mm -hmm. Because when you sit there and you get I mean, X amount of pitches a week, you're like, I don't know that they want to make this show. I think they're out on the run and they're exhausted, but I, I, you know, and I'm sure they do. And maybe that's not fair, but sometimes that was my takeaway. And I was like, oh man, I, I, I don't, I don't know, you know? And, and I would always try to just listen more than talk, but I do like to talk and just try to look for those kernels. And here's the painful part too, Jimmy. When we knew what the audience was and we knew what the business was serving, when a great idea would come in that is wrong for your network, but it's so good, you feel horrible. Mm-hmm. You're like, I wish we could have done that or I wish we could have done that. You know, and that that was really fun. And it helped to get to know a lot of people that way. And honestly, what I think bred the most success was relationships over time. So maybe the first pitch didn't fly, but we talked about something and then something came back a couple months later, then something came back a couple later. And then I would call somebody and be like, Hey, do you have anything like this? And then they would come in and we talk about it and then they nail it. Yeah. That's, that's how I think the hits got made. It was rare yeah. that something came in and you're like, Oh my gosh. You know, I'm it was sure rare. It was rare. The bl- it was rare. The blind date would end up being fruitful. It was after you had kind of, you know, gone to know each other a little bit, traded ideas back and forth for a while that you kind of land on something. Yeah. And look, one of the first shows to work was uh, Love and Marriage Huntsville, which was Carlos King, who worked on behind the scenes. So I'd known him for a long time. I wanted to do something with him. He was just emerging over at ITV. This is before he was fully on his own. And and we worked a couple of things back and forth and he just, he nailed it. I mean, it was, then it became like, oh my gosh. And that was a runaway hit. And then Will Packer came in and he wanted to do a dating show, which Oprah really wanted to do something in that space too, but for the own viewer and then I worked with a woman, uh, Stacy Carr, who was fantastic and just loves television and all the different things and dating shows. No, I love Stacy. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And she, uh, you know, pulled a list of the best sort of producers in that genre who we thought could do it. And then Lighthearted comes in and they meet the Will Packer folks. And next thing you know, Rob and Jeff were in Atlanta. We're casting the show and they're extremely talented at that. And that worked, you know, and then uh, Julie Peasy came in and it was funny because we were, we're, we're a black woman's net own own was, was, and still is a black woman's network. And they brought in a pitch, super solid format, because what we didn't have was standalone hours. Iyanla was, but we needed something. They pitched us this show. The deck did not look like the own viewer at all. And knowing, I mean, my gosh, it's being a Murray. If they can cast a, sh- you know, they can cast a show like nobody's business. And they came back with casting for the own audience and what it was. And that became a magical one. And that one took off too. Like it, it just sort of, what was, what was that one? That was family or fiance. Yeah. And it was a simple, smart format cast beyond, beyond well. I mean, it was each time it was so cool 
to see what they would come up with. And it was, you know, in self-enclosed, uh, self-contained episodes and, and that worked and it was great. But I'll tell you what started the whole thing was we acquired Bobby Kenner. We had lunch. He's like, hey, I got this little show. You can acquire it. It's not that expensive. It's, it's a husband and wife filmmaker, Toad, Tommy and Cody Oliver. It's called Black Love. And I was like, wow, I love the title. That's cool. cool. Let's see if it'll, if it'll fly. I don't, you know. And they licensed a couple of them. They put them on the air. And it was immediate that the audience responded. Relationships. And then I'm like, well, that I know. That, that we Wait, can- you acquired it. So it was, it was a short, it was like a series of films. It was a doc they did. Yeah, it was a doc they did. But it was actually like, I want to say like half hour episodes they had huh. cut. He, he's a director. And they're totally hooked up and they got great couples on there. And they just went couples. and they, they just went and made it. They went and made it. And you know, they owned it, I believe, at the end of the day. I don't know. But but think about that, John. Like, because because I know Black Love and it's a huge hit for own. It's a long-running franchise. But think about that. If the same team had come in with just the paper pitch, yeah, for something so simple, which is such a clean concept of Black Love is, which is them telling their personal love stories, like when Harry met Sally, the, the reality series, right? Yeah. Like if they just brought in the paper pitch, you might've been like, yeah, it's cool. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. It feels a little simple, you know, and right. what, what else are they doing? Are you watching them, you know, interact? There's no reality. It, it right. was just sort of, but what, what was so awesome at the time, we hadn't seen uh, couples like that talking about their relationship in that way, which I believe this is one of those things. Great idea, great executors come yeah. together for the right audience on the right network at the right price point. I mean, it, it, it had everything and we sort of backed into it. Yeah. But we had we had been nosing around because, you know, everybody wants a Housewives franchise or whatever, a 90 day, like whatever puts you on the map. But what what was determined and validating in that experience was relationships are going to work. Carlos had it in love and marriage, family or fiance, it's relationships dating its relationships and you know the shows there on the weekends so it, it, it it's super just you know worked and that that was that was really fun to do and then at some point you go well this is this is who this network is and now you have to you have to stay in in that lane and i did it i did that job for like four years and, four, it, and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a grind it was super fun but look my absolute favorite one that i did when I was back at Harpo, I wanted to jump back. We did uh, Oprah's Masterclass, which that to me was, I mean, that was, if you can ever have that much fun doing something, that it was that show. And we put it on when the network premiered and we got six seasons out of it. Mm. Um, nominated for a primetime Emmy, which was beyond anyone's expectation. It was just, that was one of those where imagine if you get like your five best people you love to work with, you're talking to extraordinarily interesting people. It's much like this podcast, Jimmy, that you're doing. You talk. Oh yeah, I'm right up there, masterclass level. Yeah, sure. Extremely wonderful people. But this, wait, did, did this show precede Masterclass, the online, the online yes. portal? Yes. It preceded that. Yes. Was there some legal action behind this? No, because you know what? There, there was there was another show on HBO even before uh, we did ours that had a Masterclass title in it. Okay. That word is you know, we, we got away with it. Sometimes we put an Oprah's name in front of it. That made it unique enough. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was a magical sort of, uh, you know, that, that was one of those where you go, Oh, 
I mean, it always did okay on the network because it is a, you got, I'd never, I thought the commercials always heard it. I'm like, boy, that would have been great on a streaming sort of situation. And yeah. there's been other versions of, of that sure. idea, but I love that one. And that one came to be in a, in an interesting way. It just felt like, you know, that, that, that was, that was one of the good ones. That was, that was one of the good ones. All right, so you spent four years in the buying job at own and you had emailed me in reference to something and I haven't unpacked it with you. You, you said you had an epiphany. You said you had an epiphany oh. of like, why it was time to, to move on. Because I, I noticed that we were, we were having success. These shows were going to come back on. We knew the lane to be in. We knew the tone to hit. We knew those things. And I'm like, this is now what this needs to be. And I think I don't have the, you know, the next great idea. Plus there were some leadership changes going on. The consolidation with discovery was becoming more and more realized. And I'm like, you know what? I hope that I was able to leave this in a better spot than when I came in, mainly because the whole building shifted to understand the audience and serve that audience. Yeah. But it was like, I think it's just going to be more of more of this. And maybe someone else should come in and look at this and they'll have the next great idea to push it farther. But I don't know how much more of this I can do. And I mean, you've met Robin, you've talked to all the people that have were producing those great shows. What's the last thing they need? A network executive peering over their shoulders going, (laughs) you know what I mean? What's the activity date on this? I mean, those guys were in it and they knew, and I liked being in it and I didn't need to be in it. Yeah. And I was like, well, I think it's time to go back to, you know, maybe looking at some other stuff, maybe figure out ways to serve different audiences, work with other people and come up with what's with what's next. I mean, it, it look, it was um, it was so bizarre to be there because I also felt like people have worked their whole careers and would love to be a, a, a run unscripted at a network. I mean, it's it's remarkable how I even ended up there. Right. So I felt like, well, let's, 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 let someone else take the reins and push it to the next level and expand this out and let me go find what that next thing is to un- uncover. That's- let's, let's talk about that. So Steel Springs Pictures. Yes. Yeah, so you are now a partner in this production company. So give, give the audience the whole backstory here and talk about this. Well, so I left own and then I was going to, you know, sit around for a minute and then the pandemic happened and sitting around for a minute didn't get much fun. And a friend of mine, uh, who it sounds very weird, but I was playing tennis with, he has a production company. His name is Peter Lawson and he's a fiction guy. I mean, he worked for Miramax, the Weinstein Company. He was one of the producers on Spotlight. He was one of the producers on John Wick. I mean, the guy makes motion pictures and he says, I'd like to do some nonfiction stuff. And I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know. And he goes, he goes, look, it's super small, but we can do whatever we can do, whatever we want. Let's, let's figure it out. So we talked about it a bunch and I said, okay. And I jumped in, I consulted for a while. I did some stuff with him. Um, He was off making a movie called Alice, which premieres in mid March, March 18th. It, it, uh, I mean, it'll be released March 18th premiered at Sundance this year, Kiki Palmer and common. He shot it during the Mm. pandemic. Crazy what he went through to get that movie made. Yeah. And 
So we're looking at some stuff that he can do the movie version of because he's got life rights. And then I could do the nonfiction doc companion. Smart. But I can also go and do other interesting stories that I've kind of always wanted to tell. And I have the ability to partner with anyone and, and all of that. So it, it was sort of like I did the daily show thing with promotion and development. I, I, I was at Harpo Studios producing for OWN. Then I was at OWN. This is sort of, I feel like, the last leg of the chair of what kind of options there are in this business. And yeah, you haven't been a full-time full-fledged producer out there that can go to any network now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, You have, you haven't been in that seat before. So yeah, this is the next big challenge. No. And the way that we structured everything felt very, very, very comfortable. And the freedom was what I was looking for. And now I can look across and go, well, we have this IP locked up. We have rights to this. Who's the best in that genre? Let's go have a conversation. And because of my old jobs, you know, a lot of those people will still take my call and we can have a meeting and figure out how that goes. And I, and just like when I was the buyer at the own being a seller now, there's tons of stuff I didn't know that I've spent the last, you know, six, eight months learning and learning from some of the best that do it to figure out all the things that you need. And even then it's a crapshoot. But the, yeah. it, it, it's the right challenge for at this point, based on all the things that I've done before, because I believe just like the the photo and on the, you know, of the sub shop that ends up on Jay Leno's set, there's a reason to all of this. And I feel like this is the piece that I think for the next however long many years, because there's some massive goals that I have that I want to achieve with this part of it. It made me get super excited about content again, because when you're not like you just said, you can go to any outlet distributor and there's all these options now to not be sort of stuck serving one audience and one business goal of a, of a linear network to now have, to be able to try to get on a streamer, to be able to try some of these other emerging formats, to be able to do some of these things that gets super interesting to me. So oh, man, I'm happy for you. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it it's, it's thrilling. It's scary. You wake up in the morning in a cold sweat. You go to bed, like checking your email. Like, I know the feeling well. I know <laughs> I the feeling well. Are you, okay. So like, now that you're on the selling side, do you look at how some of the networks behave in pitch meetings and think, was I, was I like that? Do, have you, have you had those moments? I have, I have, because you know, what's funny is you come across some interesting people now and you're like, I hope I was on my game that day or <laughs> You know, I'm like, did I not respond to that email in time? Did I not return the call in a timely fashion? Did I, you know, those those types of things for sure. And I, because look, there is absolutely, and this may come as whatever, there is absolutely no TV show out there that needs to get made. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, you have to almost will them to be and hold the enthusiasm for them and speak about them in a way that makes somebody go, okay, you know, he really wants to do it. Like they yeah. believe. And yeah. then you got to bob and weave and answer every crazy question that could come at you. Like, I got that one. I got it's, that one covered. It, it, I got this covered. Yeah. It's like Arthur Smith uh, said on the podcast. Uh, I think he said, it's one of the lines that's always stuck out to me from all the interviews I've done. He said, good shows don't sell and great shows only have a chance of selling. It's true. You know? So yeah. if like, if you don't love it, how is anybody else going to, you know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, cause I, uh, and, but here's the thing that I run through. I'm like, eliminate all the easy no's. 
because I had a whole list of them. And sometime if I felt like in the first 10 minutes that the pitch is going south, I knew like, well, I can say no because of this and I can say it here and they'll, they won't be surprised. Like whatever. I was never one of those in the room. No guys. Like I, I, that's just, it was just too brutal. But you, but, but in your head as the buyer, you were, you were prepared to look for no's. You're actively looking for no's more than you're looking to say yes. Because it, it, unless it's so blows you away, you're like, oh yeah. my gosh, this, this but if it's but you so only get so many, you only get so many swings. So you have to eliminate. Yeah. 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 And you yeah. go, okay. So I'm like, my big thing is let's eliminate all the easy no's and we'll get no based on something we didn't expect. So being on that buyer hat, you do, I, I was able to get hip to some of those now, but here's the disadvantage only because I was at a, at a linear network. So I understood the economics behind that and how the money gets divvied up and what the return has to be and all of that. But, um, you know, I'm working on that. And, and look, we're at the point now we, we, we've developed ourselves into a whatever, and it's the moment has come to really, really go and push through. And then I think whatever pushes through first, if we get one of these, uh, Arthur Smith, great ones up somewhere that will define what the next immediate future is and then gr grow it from there. But I, I think what's interesting about this situation is I don't have to be a world beater. I don't have to sell to Sony like went down today and those, those types of things. I want to make really great stuff and I want to be at the size of which it still remains that I can have an active, meaningful role in shaping them as well. Cause that's yeah. a huge passion that I somehow got away from at the network. That was the other bad thing. You buy a great show and you can't work on it. Mm -hmm. That kind of mm -hmm. sucks. So I want to get back into some of that and work with other, you know, other people. We don't have edit bays down the hall and all this crazy overhead. So we're looking for what is the strategic partnership to get these great ideas up and up. But I don't know. It's it's been fun. We'll talk to me in a year, Jimmy. Yes. And yes. we'll revisit. We'll do the check-in a year after selling. Oh. We we will check in. Yeah, All right. I'll be me, five foot two. Let me, <laughs> let me let me leave you with uh let me leave you with one thought exercise. So people seem to like the little game I played with Corey Henson at the start of her episode. Um, I meant to do this at the top of this episode, but I, I just we we jumped right into it. So yeah. I'm gonna ask you a question. You are locked in a room for one week and you can only watch one reality TV show on a nonstop loop. What is the reality TV show you choose? Do you get every season of it or is it yes. every yes. season? You get any season, not, not one episode on a loop. It's the life of that series for one week continuously. You're locked in a room. You can't watch anything else. You got one series, one option. What show are you going to have on? 24 seven for seven days in a row. Okay. You know what popped in my head first and Go with this, your is gut. Only, this is only because I remember the early seasons when it came on and how I felt, and I've now drifted away from this, but I would say survivor. I remember feeling what that felt like when it came on. I remember the whole scope and all of it was like, this is fantastic or junkyard wars. Those are my two favorites. Junkyard wars. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. But like, how do you make the jump from Survivor with like know. so I, many seasons to Junkyard Wars? That that was quite the leap. There was there was the cleverness of Junkyard Wars. I thought what a bizarre, interesting, and that was remember that was before we'd seen iterations of that. But yeah. Survivor, I think the bigness and the scale and the scope and the characters, I could probably I could probably go go for that over and over again. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's what I'm going with. Okay. 
Oh, I didn't get to tell you my one Jane Fonda story, which I love. Oh, we're just going to throw the Jane Fonda story out at the very end. Sure. I'll take it. I'll take it. Lovely. So uh, we were doing masterclass. Okay. My favorite thing of all time. Right. And we booked Jane Fonda and I would always talk to them before. I'm like, this is what the show is about. You know, look at your life, but lessons and all this. And she was great. And she said, I want to talk about my dad. I want to talk about Vietnam. I want to talk about, I'm like all this stuff. I go, great. This is how it's going to go. Not a problem. Great conversation. I'm like, wow. And she had just written a book and she was talking about her life in chapters. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we shot it at the top of the Beverly Hilton. She shows up, Jane Font. I mean, like movies, like movie star, unequivocally like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Presence of greatness. And we were using at that, Mike Bonfiglio directed that episode. He does work, a lot of work with Judd Apatow. This was sort of his, he had been documentaries, but this is like a, a show. I think this is one of his first ones or whatever. So Mike is like, he's done all his research. We have our questions down. We know what we're going to do. We're all prepped. She hits the room. Oh my gosh. Looks fantastic. Like a movie star. Mike starts asking questions and she goes, can I just stop you for one quick second? She said, I'm Pavlovian and I'm an actress and I kind of know what I want to say. All you need to say is action and I will give you the answers. So Mike has the same reaction you have in your face, eyes as big as this. And she said, look, at the end, we can pick up whatever you need, but I've thought about this so much. This is what I want to do. I'm just going to go. Just let me go. Mike, Mike would go action and she would uncork with these incredible stories, incredible <laughs> detail, emotion, land it. I think I looked at the transcript afterwards when we got it back. I'm like, Mike, I think you asked three questions. <laughs> so then... It's one of the greatest ones. Uh, it was a big favorite around around the. She's doing. She just did like a one woman show, basically. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, it was all there from yeah. swimming naked in the Mediterranean with Greta Garbo and right. her dad and this Viet- and that, Vietnam, Vietnam, everything, Vietnam yeah. and the the, ja- the jazzercise era, the workout era. All yeah, of everybody. it. Yeah. All of it. I was like, holy cow! So then, we uh, flash forward. We booked The Rock, right? Dwayne Johnson. So I'm talking to him and I'm like, here's what you got to do. You got to get into all this. And he goes, Let, he goes, hey, I got it. Let me stop you. I talked to Jane Fonda. I know how it goes. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Dwayne Johnson is just like chummy with Jane Fonda? Like, what does that even mean? I guess, I, look, he's a master preparer, as you know. Like, he, he, he. Okay, well, hold on a second. You got to give me the time lapse here. So, like, had Jane Fonda already, like, aired and been produced? So The Rock knew, or Dwayne knew who to call? to ask about this experience? Like, or was it, were you shooting these like in the same production cycle? So like, how would he know? That, I don't remember the exact, I, I want to say a whole season had passed. So maybe right. he it, saw it and then called her. It would make sense that he saw yeah. an episode and it's like, okay, I'm going to call her to like, see what it was all about. Yeah. Wait, so Dwayne at that point just like says, okay, I got it. And just starts going off about, because well, I remember that was a very highly marketed episode. Like you had, you got like, Dwayne Rock, Dwayne the Rock Johnson tears in that in that episode. Well, here's the thing. Oh my gosh, look, we had the best bookers in the business because they booked the Oprah Show forever. I mean, they were, and so they're calling from Harpo. They knew how that system worked. They they had known everybody from 19 different ways. So we we got access to incredible yeah. people. It was ridiculous, and I remember we shot because we didn't what we did is we sort of shot the show differently. We didn't really have a production window because it was too expensive to keep people on because you can't track down these people. And don't forget, 
Masterclass was not a promotional stop. They were doing it to be, I couldn't. It was your, it was your, it was the own version of biography. Exactly. And so completely non-promotional. So I can't, you have a movie coming out that doesn't, I can't do anything about that. This is just you being you. And the bookers came and they're like, oh my gosh, I think we can get Dwayne Johnson. But they're like, we have to do it before I forget what the date was because they have a thing built for him. Oh, he has a million movies. But this was sort of like, I think he had just come off Hercules maybe or something. And there was a window. And then they knew, I think they knew all this was coming. I think they knew the NBC show was coming. I think they knew everything that he has since become. Yeah was in the works and they're like if you don't get him now it'll be five years before <laughs> before you get it. and yeah he totally cried the mom walking in trap like all these i mean it was i, I it love was that insane. i love he sits says like don't worry i got it i talked to jane fonda i talked to jane fonda i know what you want i'll talk about the divorce i'll talk about this i'll talk about my mom about it i was like oh this this okay great see you bye insane amazing amazing insane, insane. john anyway. thanks for doing this Look, I told you, this was like my roadmap to the city. And I've been here six years. I'm still here and I'm not leaving. So I'm like, the podcast might have worked. I've got some real good friends out of that. I've been to Eilenberg's house. I've had dinner with Jen O'Connell many times, people like that. So I'm like, I owe it to you. I owe it to you. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, man. Well, I'm good to hear. I'm good. I'm good. To, I'm good to hear that this has served its purpose. In Very some, much in some so. Way, in some way for someone. It's good to hear. All right, Thanks, man. man. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Talk soon. Ah, Bye.